What should we be doing now to prepare for life after COVID-19? Our guest today believes the epidemic highlights the need for an ambitious reset of society. Tallulah Oni is an urban epidemiologist at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of the African Academy of Sciences. Chalu, hello and welcome to Global Science. Thanks for having me. Now I speak to you as the world is crippled by the coronavirus pandemic. So this first question is pretty broad. Please feel free to answer it any way you like. But how do you rate the global response? It's, it's an interesting question. And I think one of the things that is highlighted is that perhaps our measures or ratings of preparedness have been um, quite somewhat incorrect uh, because if we look at the countries that are that were previously rated um, highly in terms of preparedness um, the UK the US um, we're not seeing that pan out in in, in reality um, one of the things that I I think this has highlighted um, both in terms of the impact of the of the pandemic but also um the the impact of the response is the gross inequity globally across um every every city country region without exception and so i think that's one of the one of the most striking um things about about uh, the pandemic and the response is how much how much attention has not been paid um, to the widening inequity in, across all societies and how much the um, response uh, differentially impacts uh, different uh, sections of society. I've seen you write um, about how systems, current systems have been disrupted by this response in ways previously considered unthinkable. And I'd love to hear more about that. What kind of systems are you talking about? And were some of them in dire need of disruption? So I'm a, I'm an urban epidemiologist, so I work on essentially ways of looking at ways of creating health outside of healthcare, because we know that the majority, the vast majority of factors that influence health lie outside of the healthcare sector. So the healthcare sector, absolutely vital, um, uh, but a lot of that health is shaped outside the healthcare. So in, in, in our food environment, in our built environments, in our transport, in, our, in the air that we breathe. And so prior to the pandemic, I've been, work, been working and continue to work on looking at how to integrate and how to incorporate better align health and well-being into those very um, sectors, policies, strategies that determine um, and so can create or undermine our health. And one of the things that uh, this pandemic has revealed or made um, unanimously or universally clear is that health is everybody's business. And so I find myself not having to convince anyone of that anymore because prior to the pandemic, it was a little bit, you know, it was a bit like absolutely health is important. That is undeniable, but that's not really what I do. Um, I'm focused on X, Y, and Z. And now with the pandemic, 
you'd struggle to find a sector of society that didn't think um, health was their business in some way and wasn't having to respond either proactively in terms of the emergency response or reactively in terms of adapting and thinking about the workplace and the health of, 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 of employees. So suddenly or not so suddenly, um, health is everyone's business. That's one of the things. Another is that how that health is political. Um, sometimes we like to see these, especially as you know, scientists, or we're very separate um, and we're independent and we're objective, which we are. But the reality is, for the vast majority of people, um, ensuring equitable access to healthy environments and health care is a political decision and comes from public policy. And, and we've seen this in, 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 the, in the pandemic response. We've seen the differences in, in, um, in effectiveness when there is a strong um, leadership and strong um, public policy response. Uh, particularly in the protection of the most vulnerable, and so those are some of the some of the things that um, uh, things that are that have been revealed or amplified uh, that are most um, <laughs> that have been have been there all along, and we've known all along. And the reason I I pointed those out is that when we start thinking about the need to do things differently, um, we have to con firstly confront the the a mindset of impossibility because often it's you know we need to do things differently absolutely we need to create health it's just that that's not how it's done it's just because of and we think about all the things that aren't possible and so i i i i uh, wrote those because i thought it was important to first confront that fallacy because a lot of things that were deemed impossible or radical or unthinkable overnight um, came into came into place um, uh, implemented for as part of the pandemic response and if we can internalize that then we can start to think very much more transformatively be transformatively um, about how how we can reimagine um, what is to come absolutely it kind of really gives evidence to really we didn't reason anything is possible because we've seen such radical change in such a small amount of time so can we talk about africa and i was wondering about how uh, in in this response we balance um you know the need for a strong local response with global coordination or, or whether that balance you know isn't necessary mm, mm. So I've previously also spoken about how um, this is a good time for um, for the region, continent of Africa, to start planning and preparing um, for um, for preventing and responding to the next urban health crisis. Um, I said that not because it is specific to to the region of Africa, because now is the best time for all cities in all countries and all regions, but cities in countries across Africa can lead the way um, in, in thinking about this. And I say this because they are um, growing uh, more rapidly than any other region. Um, they, are, they comprise very dynamic systems um, in flux, um, constantly shape-shifting, adapting to an 
an onslaught of daily new realities. They have a high number of young people. Um, we know this is vital for any kind of transformative process. And there are many actors involved in the process of shaping and developing these new and, and growing cities. So I think all of these present a, a, an opportunity for doing things differently. And if we thinking about the, the um, response between local versus global, I, I mean, I think it's a continuum because if we take a step back, um, there is there is a reinforcing loop between the human human activity, um, the uh, natural and built environments um, and how and, and the influence on the emergence of new pathogens uh, or old pollutants, if you like. Um, and the, this reinforcing loop directly impacts on the, on the probability of, of emergence, emergence of new disease, directly impacts on the vulnerability um, to new and old diseases, be that infectious diseases like, uh, like COVID or, um, or existing pandemics like obesity, which have been going on. So cities, they have the most dynamic human activity and the changes, all the changes to these environments for better or worse, um, will determine and shape um, or avert the next the next health crisis. And so responding to that has to have a component of um, on of the gradient from local to global. We have to understand and and engage um, with um, at the community level to understand what the health needs and health inequities and vulnerabilities are. But it's important that that the ways that we talk about this are not individualized because fundamentally we need we need urban systems we need a different rethinking of urban governance that actually supports health and well-being so yes let's do urban but but better yeah, as you say you know health is everyone's business as we're seeing more and more i really love that term that you've used is it emergency foresight and I think that speaks to, you know, how we, we prepare ourselves and we learn from this so we can do things better. Can you speak a, a bit more about what that is and, and how we might benefit from it? Mm-hmm. So it's really just challenging the notion of what constitutes emergency response. And I use the word emergency because something about that word, for obvious reasons, um, gets us off our backsides and gets us gets us gets action um because when we say yes you know um the obesity pandemic is coming yes we know that it's reducing um life expectancy it's causing a lot of ill health even amongst the younger it's a bit like yes yes you know we're just we're just sorting out the economy now and then we'll deal with it later but when you say this is an emergency um as as we see now with a global uh pandemic um it gets everyone everyone to action so when we talk about emergency response, we're normally thinking about the context of well, what do we have in front of us and how do we how do we shield the most vulnerable? How do we break transmission cycles like in the case of COVID? How do we um, get things get things going again, get people back to work, back to school again in a safe way? We're thinking very acutely and we're on our toes. 
when we start thinking about foresight, um, in other words, internalizing the fact that many of the shocks and the stressors that drive um, health emergencies, be that acute or more protracted, stem from intentional choices by local and global actors. So when I say emergency foresight, I mean, can we look at building resilience that confronts decisions and systems that weaken um, systems for health? And I talk about systems for health as the broader systems that influence and, and could undermine health, but could also create health. So in the context of, of the pandemic, for example, if we're thinking about emergency foresight, then we're thinking now about um, critically, what are the systems that we've put into place societally now that have fostered ecological disruption that, that um, uh, facilitates emergence of new disease and that uh, the new viruses and pathogens and systems that weaken um, uh, huge numbers of, uh, of populations, vulnerability and ability to respond. That is what foresight is. And beyond just kind of um, descriptively observing this, recognizing that it is as much an emergency to deal, deal with the um, impacts of the pandemic today as it is to prevent the pandemic by realigning those systems that have lost their way for um, health and for, sustain, for sustainable development. So it really is getting, trying to get across the urgency. Yes, and I can already, you know, hear like in my mind's throwing up some barriers to that. You know, it seems like humans, unless the problem is right there for us, it's really hard to focus on it and make it current and, and make it seem, as you say, like an emergency. Um, what are some ways, and you could use some specific examples that we could address that? Because at the moment, you're right, health is front of mind for everyone, but that will probably not be the case once, um, you know, life in life post-COVID. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say about um, some of the challenges of, 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 of reacting and feeling an emergency when it's not right there in front of us. And that is, I guess, um, a part of our evolutionary process because, you know, we have the, the fight or flight um, aspect of, is, is perhaps the most uh, evolved uh, part of our, of, of, our, of our brain. So we know when we're confronted with an emergency right there and then to run, um, otherwise we won't be here. Um, but when we have emergencies that are, for example, disconnected in time and space, so when you have an exposure that results in an emergency three years later, 10 years later. Like climate change, for example? <laughs> for example, <laughs> um, when I'm building a city now, I'm not, um, my contract doesn't end when um, three, five years later, we look at hospitalizations from um, asthma that might be exacerbated from damp in the houses I built. There's just no, there's a disconnect. Um, so. Part of um, 
what is necessary is bringing those things together. So we have siloed, we have siloed policies, we have siloed budgets, we have siloed data, we have siloed research um, that is all doing really great things, but not connecting um, the health impacts, um, connecting to the health impacts. So a critical part of addressing that is, of addressing that problem blindness, is bringing those things closer together. Because until we, connect and create accountability for health across all the different sectors and actors that actually are more responsible for health than the healthcare sector, we still, we continue to have this dissonance. So a critical part is bringing those, bringing those together. Uh, it really, um, it sounds like, you know, we are really trying to put ourselves in, you know, the driver's seat rather than just reacting to things that happen, really tracing out how they have happened and then really being proactive in our role in this so that we're not just putting out fires, but we're working to see why they happened and and what we can do to, to prevent them in the future, uh, which is, is slightly daunting because I kind of think, you know, um, how do we predict, like how do we anticipate? It almost kind of sounds like we need a bit of a crystal ball to, to predict exactly how things are going to go wrong in the future. How would you respond to that? We don't need a crystal ball. One of the things I love about public health is this is one of the most obvious um, sciences. Um, <laughs> nothing I say <laughs> today is going to be groundbreaking and it's, it, it's, it's going to be anything surprising. We've known for a long time, we know the exposures that determine health. We know the connections, we know, we know water sanitation, we know transport systems, we know the food systems, we know the air that we breathe, we know that the, the ability to connect to people, we know, <laughs> we know these things already um, um, influence, uh, influence health. There's no crystal ball needed. What we do need, and what is even more daunting, because you mentioned it was daunting, well, what is daunting is if we think about the impact of reacting to this current pandemic, <laughs> it is daunt. I mean, it is, it is daunting. It is mind blowing just how much in it's cost in human lives, um, physical and mental, how much it's cost in terms of the economy, how much it's cost in terms of uh, children and development with schools closed. I mean, that is what's daunting to me. We, what is daunting is our current reality. What is less daunting is think is, is investing now at a fraction of what the current cost is now to prevent us from having to do this again or to reduce the risk of, of us having to do this again. That is much more, that I can understand a lot more. Um, we've, we've started talking now about um, uh, you know, recovery and uh, the new normal and building back better. And, and my question is better, what do we mean by better? And better for whom? So, I mean, uh, what, is, what is daunting for me um, is how quickly we need to rally um, all sects of society. I think we need we need a, a, a new deal, like I've talked about, a, like a Marshall Plan for planetary health, something like that. We, we need the kind of a social, a psychological contract to guide what comes next. To say what are what are our norms? How do we shift? It's it's not a default when we say a new normal. A new normal is not 
by default. It's not by, not by, it has to be by design, right? So we have to say, well, what are the things that we're, we are, that we're prioritizing? And how do we ensure, how do we align our systems? How do we align our incentives to make sure it's producing health and well-being and doing so in a sustainable way for the planet? What would that look like? To get specific, you've, you've talked about this a, a bit already, but, you know, if, if we could do that, you know, if we kind of fast forward to, again, life post-COVID, what would that society look like for you? And in what ways would it be different to now? I would say maybe three things. One is that, um, particularly I'll frame it around cities. Um, so one is that all finance and investment, be that from public or private sectors in the context of urban, urban development design is, has the, um, uh, the indicators and the conditions for any loans, any, 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 kind of large-scale development absolutely are centered on health impact and how how they demonstrably um, not just prevent disease but proactively create health because that's the opportunity you can say yes I'm not contributing to um, the poor air quality but are you missing the opportunity to create social infrastructure that makes physical activity more um, much easier for for the majority of people and if so then by not doing that you're not creating health when you have the space to do that so that's the first thing i think the investment and and, fi and finance strategy related to that um it has to be supported by um, by research and by science by the sciences so the sciences arts humanities to understand uh, you know, to bring in what we already know um, and to measure how the ways in which um, these uh, developments and these changes in the environment are impacting human and environmental health. Um, health doesn't trickle down from good intentions, right? We don't just say, you know, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm not going to do anything bad for what I do. Um, so just trust me and I'm going to do that. Well, we need to measure that. And we need to, so we need to bring in measurement sciences. We need to understand. And, 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 that, and that, is, that is a very kind of um, socially involved. So what, what the people need, why would people not engage with a space, even though it looks a particular way and could potentially create health. So this really highlights the importance of, of, of the sciences engaging with this very practical um, changes in the environment. And thirdly, and I think possibly most critical, it needs a social movement. We, we will be led by the young. <laughs> we need to be. Um, we've seen the, the potential um, of, um, for the young in the context of climate change. And within the context of this pandemic, um, I think my most, my most heartening um, moments um, over the last few months have come from engaging with uh, different young uh, people across different parts of the world who are already imagining, they're already reimagining what tomorrow would look like. Um, so if, we, if there is a critical a mass of young people who are connected globally and engaged in, in driving a, a, a relentless uh, uh, demand for healthy, sustainable uh, post-COVID uh, recovery, I really think 
that is a critical drive um, for for um, for the rest of us to wake up as a collective humanity and humankind and rediscover our our collective purpose because fundamentally we're here as custodians of this planet and custodians of each other that's that's the point right absolutely uh, Tolu, there is so much there and I think, you know, it's all about food for thought but food for action as well and it's really kind of given me a kind of psychological kick up the backside in terms of being more proactive about so much of this stuff. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Remember to hit subscribe for our regular videos and while you're here, check out our past episodes.